0: Hi, church. Good to see you. Glad you're here. We're in this uh, series called Storyline. Um, I mentioned this last week, but it was much later in my life when I realized that this library of books that we call the Bible, while made up of individual stories, are actually telling one great, grand story from Genesis to Revelation. And I think part of the, the problem that we find in the church is we lose sight of that grand story. And so what we're trying to do over the next few weeks is to look at the parts of that story. And, and I'm, I'm just looking at um, four basic parts. The first one um, I, I covered last week was creation, but then there's fall. Uh, redemption and, and resolution. So four basic parts to this story. Um, if you're in a, a one of our life groups, we're reading a book called um, Long Story Short, and I think that author divides it up into six parts. That's okay. He can do that because he's writing a book and he needs more chapters. I'm doing a sermon series, and we don't want to be doing this for six weeks, right? <laughs> so we're just going to do four, four of these pieces. And last week, as I mentioned, I covered Genesis chapter one because as soon as you open the book you're confronted with this thing that's kind of like a poem or maybe a song or in some, um, some circles they call it an epic and the whole idea is that there's this unique piece of literature in Genesis chapter 1 that kind of outlines how God created the universe, universe and it describes more than anything God's nature that he's the one who spoke order into chaos. And there's no fight about it. And, and the whole point to that epic sort of poem is to show that humanity has a place in this created order as God's representatives. And more importantly, and I think this is the, the thrust of the story, is that Yahweh who is the central character in the whole thing, is profoundly different than all of the other gods of the ancient Near East. Every single one of them, Yahweh comes out saying, humanity has a purpose, there is order now, not chaos, and there was no fight to it. It's an amazing thing when you take this story in Genesis chapter one and you put it up next to all of the other creation narratives from the other religious traditions in the ancient Near East. And what I find really interesting is that there are two creation accounts. Have you ever, have you ever noticed that? In Genesis one, there's a creation account and then there's another one in Genesis chapter two. And, in, and I, I, I was watching something on YouTube. By the way, YouTube is a really dangerous thing for this kind of stuff because there's this line that gets blurred between um, scholarship and conspiracy theory. <laughs> and uh, I, I heard one individual say, well, no, there, there's not one creation. There's actually two creations. And I'm like, man, you're reading the same Bible I am because that doesn't make any... Anyway, it was, just, it was very strange to listen to that. But there's two accounts. And in Genesis chapter 1, we have this poem-ish kind of thing. But in Genesis chapter 2... It's a narrative. I mean, it is distinctly a, a narrative that's being told, and we're introduced to this person named Adam, the, the first man, as it were. And so the way I like to think about this is that, while Genesis 1 gives us the broad, general view, Genesis 2 begins to, if you'll pardon the phrase, "flush it out. In a, in a very real sense, is that, okay, here's the, the general, this is the particular. Does that make sense? So we have two accounts in order for us to understand that we have this, this order of the universe, and here's what it looks like. And I think that's an important piece as we're trying to not only un, um, to, to study this, but to also interpret it and to understand it. Now, I'm not going to take time to, to deal with specifically the narrative of Genesis chapter 2, but I think what we need to to come to grips with is that at the end of Genesis 1 and, and even in well into Genesis chapter two is that there's this perfect picture of creation. This is what God had in mind when he put it together. in fact, you, you've heard me say this before he looked upon it and he said not that it was good but it was very good and, and the the term in Hebrew is very, very strong here that it was Excellent. that it was perfect in, in many, many respects. And so the vision is this king enthroned over a peaceful kingdom. Now, how many of you are living in a peaceful, perfect kingdom? Something's wrong, isn't it? We, we, we know this um, for a number of reasons. Uh, we just have to look at our news feed. Or we'll read in the newspaper, if you can still do that these days. And we know when we turn the television on, something's wrong. I, I mean, just what, yesterday? Aurora, Illinois. Seven people. And, and And there used to be this time where we would where we'd all be like, oh my gosh. And yes, my heart goes out for them, but it seems like things like that have been happening. And not just that, but other things as well that are happening over and over again that I'm afraid we're becoming sensitized to it. we know that there's something wrong? That's not what God had in mind, right? I mean, just kind of, I'm being fired, so it makes sense for me to go and empty a magazine? I mean, there's something wrong. And we all know it. There's something not what we find in Genesis chapter 1 and even into Genesis chapter 2. And, and, and we, we have to acknowledge that in a room this size, this number of people, some of you have experienced personally chaos and darkness. So what happened? So today we're going to deal with not creation but we're going to deal with the fall when when something went wrong. And so we're going to actually pick up the story in Genesis chapter 2 just a little bit. I want to show you some things and then we're going to go into Genesis chapter 3 where everything seems to fall apart. Genesis chapter 2, verse 8 and 9. Now, the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, And there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So remember, we have this general sort of poem-ish type of thing that describes how God separated and then God caused and he filled... Well, here's what it actually looks like. The Lord God planted a garden. And he he took his first man that he formed and he put him in there. And then a few verses later, we read this. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Okay. Very clear, right? I mean, there's there's no question that God has actually laid out some boundaries here with this with uh, within this garden, and and first and foremost is that you know He gives the human being a job, and He says you need to cultivate and care for it. I mean, some of you have heard me talk about this before. That this is this is the first kind of command that God gives to humankind, particularly. And it's never been revoked. We are still supposed to. People wonder why I'm a bleeding heart liberal when it comes to the environment. This is why. It doesn't come from an ide- ideology or some kind of political stance or anything. It comes from my theology. And God said, cultivate and care for it. Okay, that's still my job. And it's all of our jobs. And then he gives us other command. Don't eat from this particular tree. Don't do it. You got all kinds of other trees. You don't need to eat from this one. So don't do it. So, thinking in, in, in the terms here that you have, in Genesis chapter 1, you have God laying out um, you know, creation and human beings and where God is, and there's kind of this order to it. That's the general sense of it. But then in, in Genesis chapter 2, it becomes more particular. God's still in command, and he says to the humans, cultivate and care for it. That's their relationship to the creation, and leave those two trees alone. Keep your hands out of the cookie jar. Okay? Does this make sense? So we have a general sense, and then we have a particular sense. And then the action begins to gain some momentum in Genesis chapter 3. And I invite you to turn uh, with me there to Genesis chapter 3. I want to read the first, um, I I guess I'll, I'll say the first seven verses uh, and then we're going to kind of pick this apart a little bit more. So Genesis chapter 3, I'm going to read from the NIV version. Um, I realized that I forgot my Bible t- today at, at my office, and so I'm going to kind of go new school. There's a couple things that I'm old school about, one of which is coffee. I don't like foo-foo drinks. I like regular coffee, and I really like my Bible Bible. Because it's, it's more real if you say it twice, Bible Bible. He talked to people, like, I went on a date with him, but it wasn't a date date. What? I kissed him, but it wasn't a kiss kiss. Huh? I don't even know what that means. Anyway, so this is a digital Bible we're going to be reading from. It's amazing I'm going to get anything done today, right? All right, so this is chapter 3. Let me start reading at verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from from any tree in the garden. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat, from, uh, may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. Verse 4, you will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Now, <laughs> we know that this is a particular unit within the story because there's a wordplay, a very interesting wordplay that I want to point out to you. Um, recently discovered it. In verse number one, it says that the serpent is crafty, okay? Now, in ancient Hebrew, the word for crafty is erum. Not a room in the house, okay? Erum. And you have to roll your R's, erum, okay? And notice later on that when they eat from the fruit, they realized they were what? Naked. Now, if you're from certain parts of the South, it's naked. And there's a difference between the two. Naked means you don't have any clothes on. Naked means you don't have any clothes on. You're up to something. In this case, it says they're naked. In ancient Hebrew, the word here is erom. Erum led to erom. The craftiness of the serpent led them eventually to do something that caused them to realize they were naked. This is a word play, and it's to help us define what's going on in this story. Does this make sense? So we have this seven verses of this, this story, crafty. Now there's a ton of questions here that are, are worth um, kind of puzzling out. Like, for instance, why are there two trees? There are two trees in the middle. There are two trees. Why are there two trees? And why did God put the? Why did God put these barriers around them? Why did? Why did He just plant them to begin with? I mean, there's a lot of questions related to that, right? Um, and then there's nowhere in here that it says that the serpent was the devil. And I grew up with that kind of notion: is that well, the devil is the serpent, and there's doesn't say that in the text there's nothing that suggests that in the text and then also it did say God said or you will surely die but when they ate from the fruit they didn't instantaneously die it wasn't like boom and they were knocked over wait what what's that all about see what i mean There's some questions here within the story. You know, there's this part of me that that thinks, and this is just me, but, you know, after they ate from the fruit and they they were still standing there, I I think the snake was kind of like, yeah, I always wondered about that. (laughs) You know, I just kind of wonder if that ran through the snake's mind. I, I don't know. But anyway, we can puzzle out some of those questions, but I think what we're more interested in for the, for the sake of the storyline, for this grand narrative that we're talking about, is, is to, to really look at the effects of this. Not just the details, and not to puzzle some of those things out of this ancient verse, but rather to, to, to really look at what the effects were. And so what happens is, is, in the very next verses, it's, it's kind of like an uh-oh moment. Here it is in, in verse 8. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Like, uh-oh, busted, right? So we just realized something happened. We had to find some fig leaves real quick and cover up, and, and here's God walking in the, in the garden. And they hid from the Lord God among the... They hid from God. Like, really? (laughs) You haven't figured this out yet? Okay. They hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden, but the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? And he answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And, And he said, Who told you you were naked? Who told you that? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? This reminds me of when your kids are in the other room and say, don't come in here. (laughs) Or it gets a little too quiet, right? the same kind of thing. How did did you know you were naked? Because I know I didn't tell you that. There's only one other way you can learn this, and that's that tree. And So did you eat? Ask the question. And then notice what happens next. The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. So not only did he, <laughs> did he throw the woman under the bus, the 1018 is right on time, poof, right? Then he goes and he blames God. Yeah, that woman, the one you put here with me, mm-hmm, the one he was really excited about earlier on in the chapter, the one where he went, whoa, man, woman. You'll get that later. You know. The one that he's all excited about. Now it's God's fault for bringing her into the picture. It's her fault. I ate because she gave it to me. And by the way, you put her here. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Do you see the blame just kind of going right through every character. it's just blame. something about human beings. Throw somebody under the bus, and then that person puts it on someone else, and just goes on and on and on, blame. And then God begins to render his verdict. Here it is, verse 14 and 15. So the Lord God said to the serpent, "'Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. "'You will crawl on your belly, and you will eat dust all the days of your life. "'And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. "'He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel.' "'To the woman he said, I will make your pains and childbearing very severe. "'With painful labor you will give birth to children.' Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Now, here's an interesting little side note. Up until the 20th century, the number one um, cause of death among women was childbirth. Up until the 20th century. And we see kind of where this comes from, at least as the ancients understood it. And also, I want you to notice there's something here that I find fascinating. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Remember, there's this idea of, of, of um, certain creatures ruling over certain spaces. So the birds of the air ruled over the air, the fish of, ruled over the sea, and, and the livestock ruled over the land, and human beings were supposed to rule all over them. And now, now it's different. Now one human rules over another. Another. So when we talk about things like equality, that is a pre-fall condition. So when we go to things like Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22, where it says, wives, obey your husbands, you have to start in verse 21, it says, submit now one to another. Because Christ fixes all this and brings us to a pre-fall state where we are equal. We wonder about the Me Too movement. It is evidence of the fall, and it's wrong. You with me? So we have this moment in history that just says, and he will rule over you. Going on, to Adam he said, I love this, because you listen to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Now, fellas, do not go home and say, I'm not supposed to listen to you. That was pre-fall, post-fall, now you need to pay attention. Okay, I'm just, just saying, I'm kidding. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate from the, from the, the tree about which, uh, which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. And so we have these verdicts on each of the characters in the story. That's painful. It's painful to actually read those. And then and then finally in, in verse 23, so the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. It's not the way it's supposed to be. He's banished from that place that was beautiful and perfect. And God never intended us for to know for us to know evil. Just the blessing of his presence and the abundance of his creation, and now. We're back right to chaos and darkness all over again. Hmm. Now there are plenty of details, but remember our interest is in the big 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 story, the, the overall narrative. And, and I want you to really understand what's happening here. Not just the verdicts, not just the details, but what's actually happened here. And what I want to suggest to you is that what we see are a series of broken relationships. And these are very important because I think that if we look into the world today, we continue to see these over and over again. Now, there's a couple that are very easy to see. The first one that's easy to see, I think, is there's a, <laughs> there is a distinct breaking of relationship between humanity and God. Would you agree? They disobeyed, right? Here it is. Don't touch it. Who told you you're naked? There's a there's a a choosing against what God has has commanded. And the other one that's easy to see here is this breaking of relationship between human beings and other human beings. The the relationships we have with each other. And and the evidence of that is blame. That woman that you gave me, she's a fault. And isn't it interesting that God, when he gives his verdict, says to the man, says directly to him, you listen to her. It was your job to help her. And it's her job to help you. You failed each other. That's what happened here. That relationship is now broken. And I think that there's some other ones here that are a little more subtle. Things that we need to pay attention to. And the first one is this, is I think that there's a a breaking of relationship between human beings and creation itself. There's a a phrase here that's really important. You might remember it. By the sweat of your brow. You remember reading that? We actually find that phrase elsewhere. There's an ancient language called Akkadian. I'm kind of happened up in Mesopotamia and current Iraq and Iran. There's a civilization there called the Akkadians. And in Akkadia, we, we have some, some records of, of um, letters and whatnot. And one of the things that we find is this idiom called sweat of your brow. And it, it quite specifically means that there, is, there isn't enough. Isn't that interesting that up until that moment in time, there was enough and now he would have to toil and worry and stress about having enough. Sound familiar? And I know people today, I'll be honest, I struggle with it myself. You just wonder, well, how are we going to make ends meet or, or whatever the issue happens to be? How are we going to get through this season? Right? Mother Hubbard's cupboard is bare. It's all evidence from this broken relationship that human beings have with the created order. There was always supposed to be the presence of God and the abundance of creation. And now there's worry. Is there enough? Is there enough? Hmm. And then finally, I think there's another relationship that's broken. It's the broken, brokenness that we have within ourselves. Because at one point it says that they were naked, but they didn't know shame. And as soon as they were naked, they realized they were naked and they covered themselves. That's shame. Shame is different from guilt. Guilt means I am remorseful for something that I have done. Shame is when I am remorseful for who I am. And toxic shame is when I no longer value who I am. And shame is the scourge of suburban America. They see it over and over and over and over again. And when we've got this thing deep inside of us, and then we put up these masks. I'm okay, you're okay, we're okay. And inside we're going, but I'm really not. And one of the things that we talked about when we started Thrive Church was, could we just start with the fact that I'm as screwed up as you are, and you're as screwed up as I am, and maybe we could give each other some grace? Because it's all evidence of a fall. And let's just start there. Just a thought. And we see all of these broken relationships, every single one of them, on a massive scale, every single day. There are people who are convinced that God doesn't exist human beings who seem addicted to war and violence. Shame is rampant. Climate change and overconsumption are real. When we see this over and over again, and you kind of get a little depressed by all this kind of stuff and go, ah, what's going on? But there's good news. Believe it or not, there's really good news. And, and it's why we don't... We don't finish the story in Genesis chapter 3. There's a whole lot more book to go. The creator, this person, this individual who spoke order into the chaos and it became real. That one, that creator is committed to his creation. It was very good. I'm not going to let anybody mess it up. That's how it sounds in David world. But there it is. He's committed to his creation. And God still speaks order into chaos and darkness. I still believe that. And God is not content to leave it in a mess. He is still sorting chaos and darkness all the way around us. And that is good news. That he is... Committed, and he's not content to leave it where it's at. And I think he's embarked on a massive rescue operation. And we get to talk about that next week. That's what we call a hook. So, if you want to get the really good news, you got to come back next week. But we can't leave it here. We can't leave it in this spot with just broken relationships. There's, there's something about about God being committed to all this and saying, mm, no, 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 you don't get a chance to mess all of this up. There is something else here and I can do something about this. And the beautiful part, and I still don't understand this, is that we get to join him in that rescue operation. I just, that, that part just blows my mind. We get to tell people about this. Now here's the thing, here's the thing. We look at, around us and we know things are wrong. We feel it. We feel it in our own souls and we read it and and sometimes, yeah, we have to desensitize ourselves to it because it's just too much. It's just too overwhelming. But here's the thing that you have to remember. The Lord God showed up in the garden when all of this mess happened and he said to them, where are you? And he's still asking us the same question. Where are you? To you, Right now, wherever you're seated in this room, he's asking you that question. Where are you? See, the thing about the story, the story of Adam and Eve, whether you want to believe they were actual human characters or not, the point is every single person has experienced this level of temptation. And every single one of us are predisposed to make the same stupid choice that Eve and Adam did. Their story is our story, and it happens not just once, but every single day. Have you noticed that? How many times does your head hit the pillow and go, Man, I wish I had that one back? And it doesn't matter because God is still saying, Where are you? Where are you? where are you that is a creator committed to his creation that is the one who says i'm not content to leave you in the mess i'm not content for you to just suffer through your own foolishness i really really have something else for you where are you my friends that's great news don't you think